Hello, 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 lovely geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. This is Reggie here once again with an hour of geeky news, views and stuff. I am flying solo once again this week, but rest assured, my discussion with Alice about Lord of the Rings is at least scheduled now. It's just happening after we record this. So you're stuck with just me for one more week. But what a week this is. So much, so much stuff to go through. And as is becoming traditional, we are going to start with this. Yes, time to dock with the mothership for more space news. Well, not so much space news, actually, this week, but space analysis. Because I don't have a big story for you, particularly this week. There is space news this week, insofar as something's been announced by NASA, but really it's the announcement of something that is so obvious and has been so obvious for so long that it really doesn't count as news. NASA have this week announced that they're not going to get people back to the moon by 2024. This comes as no surprise to anybody who follows space. It was always a ridiculous and unreachable target. It was set by President Trump, who announced that that is what he wanted NASA to focus on and what he wanted NASA to achieve. And honestly, anyone who knew anything about space and what we need to do to get back to the moon and the technology we had available at the time could have told him that there's no way that's going to happen, Mr. President. And to be honest, I'm fairly sure a lot of people did and he ignored them. Let's be honest. That's a long way from being the worst thing that President Trump did in office. So I'm going to let the whole telling NASA to go to the moon in an impossible timescale thing just go. It does, however, raise a question, because how come we can't get back to the moon by 2024? I mean, NASA's been there six times between 1969 and 1972. Twelve men, and they were all men, have walked on the moon. I've met one of them. Really nice guy. It does seem ridiculous that in the late 60s and early 70s, we were able to take spacecraft with people on board to the moon and back multiple times. And today, we can't. How come? That seems counterintuitive. And I've heard people actually use it as evidence for their ridiculous we never landed on the moon hoax theory nonsense things. Uh, just word of the wise, we went to the moon, okay? If you are one of these moon landing denier type people, just stop it, okay? There was no conspiracy to pretend we went to the moon. We went to the moon. I can prove it to you. I'm not going to waste my time doing it now. But if anybody really buys into all that nonsense, let me know. And I promise you, I can demonstrate to you any number of reasons why not only was the moon landing not faked, it actually couldn't have been. The truth is, we had the technology to go to the moon in 1969. We did not have the technology to fake going to the moon in 1969. Also, anyone who can believe that NASA masterminded a conspiracy to fake going to the moon involving as many people as it would have had to have involved has clearly never had to project manage anything because that level of optimism is just freaking adorable. Anyway, I'm done patronising the idiots. Truth is, we haven't been back to the moon since 1972. Why not 
And how come we can't just do it now? Surely, to goodness, we could just build another Saturn V, maybe make the command module a little bit more comfortable, and just go. Well, we can't because things don't work like that. For a start, I actually don't think we could build another Saturn V. I don't think there are any left. I'm pretty sure that the last flyable ones we used in the Skylab project. And to be honest, even if there is a Saturn V kicking around somewhere, it would be 50 years old. Okay, I would not trust my life to a 50 year old tube full of high explosives, which is basically what a Saturn V would be now. So we don't have any Saturn Vs that we could use, and I genuinely don't think we could build another one. We just don't have engineers with the experience anymore. And that's not because we don't have any engineers as good as the engineers who worked on the Apollo program. It's just that they were making a bespoke thing. I mean, Saturn V rockets, spacecraft in general, have never been mass produced. The closest we've ever got to that is what the Russians have done with Soyuz and what the Americans did with the space shuttle. But Honestly, they're still kind of a, a, a bespoke, handcrafted thing. So in order to build a new Saturn V, you really would genuinely have to start pretty much with a blank sheet of paper and design it again from scratch. Now, clearly, that's going to take a while. The Saturn rocket program, which culminated in the masterpiece that is the Saturn V, must have been a good 15 years. So. We ain't doing that. And we don't currently have anywhere in the world a spacecraft capable of getting beyond low Earth orbit. We haven't had since the last Saturn V flew. Okay, The Russians never had a viable spacecraft that could get as far as the moon. The Saturn V is currently the only rocket ever to have existed that could take people beyond low Earth orbit. The Russian Soyuz can't. The space shuttle couldn't. And to date, none of the private billionaire-based space companies have got anything either, although SpaceX's Starship is looking promising. NASA has a rocket in development that could get us there and that will probably be human-rated for flight by 2024. So actually it isn't rocket technology that's the, the real break on getting people back to the moon. It's something that people often don't consider and which is a much more tricky problem to crack than you might think. The reason there is no possible way NASA can put boots on the ground on the moon by 2024 is that they haven't got any spacesuits. And now again, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Reggie, I've seen footage of people floating around outside the International Space Station. They were definitely wearing spacesuits because there's no way to do that without. And you're right, of course. And if you're not thinking that, you might also be thinking, what do you mean they haven't got any spacesuits? Can't they just make some? They know how to. The Apollo astronauts had spacesuits. Surely they've still got the pattern. And again, that is certainly true. The Apollo era astronauts did wear spacesuits. But here's the thing. Spacesuits are really complicated. And the moon is an incredibly harsh environment because basically it's got soil made out of knives. Not even joking. Lunar regolith, which is what they have on the moon instead of soil, is very, very sharp. And if you go to a museum and you have a look at any of the Apollo era 
moonwalking spacesuits, you will notice that they've all got one thing in common. They are absolutely destroyed. They are frayed. They are worn. They've got little rips in them. And a rip in a spacesuit is a very bad thing. The truth is, the Apollo spacesuits simply were not designed for long duration use. They were designed for, at maximum, three days on the moon. They just about managed that. If they'd extended lunar surface missions to, say, four or five days, there's a very good chance that we would have had suit failure. And unless you can do something about it very, very quickly, there is no kind of suit failure on the moon that isn't fatal. So the Apollo era spacesuits won't do. And even if they would, we probably can't make them anymore for the same reason we can't build a Saturn V. It's a very skilled job. And even if there's anybody left alive who worked on the originals, they're very definitely not working because they'd be in their 90s by now. So that ain't going to fly. Quite literally, ain't going to fly because it ain't going to happen. Now, the spacesuits that they use on the ISS would be no good either because they're not designed to be worn in gravity. The ISS spacesuits were specifically designed for use on the Space Shuttle and the International Space Station, and they assume a microgravity environment. That is to say, they don't expect you to weigh anything. You can move about in the spacesuits that NASA currently has only if you can also fly, which of course in space you can. On the moon, you can't. Gravity on the moon is much weaker than it is here, but it does still exist. If you were to try to walk around on the moon in the kind of spacesuits they have on the ISS, you wouldn't make it very far before you fell over. And as previously discussed, the soil on the moon is made of knives. You don't want to be falling over on it. So NASA is creating new suits and they're really good. Links in the show notes to all kinds of information about this. The new NASA spacesuits are much easier to move around in than the Apollo era suits. They are much tougher than the Apollo era suits. You could use them repeatedly on the moon and they're easier to get into. They're more comfortable. They offer the, the wearer better visibility. All around, they're a massive improvement. They're also behind schedule and over budget because they're a NASA project and NASA projects always are. For this very simple reason that the goalposts keep getting moved, what the equipment that NASA is trying to design is supposed to do keeps changing and projects almost never get the amount of money they were initially promised, unless they overrun, in which case they get loads more, but begrudgingly and never when it's actually needed because politics. Throw in the closure of NASA officers because of the pandemic and of course it's late, of course it is. So when will they be ready? Well, they won't be ready by 2024. They may be ready by spring 2025. Will we see a, a, a lunar mission then? Again, I think not. Now this is not to say that we won't have been around the moon. I suspect if only to demonstrate that things are happening as soon as NASA has a craft capable of taking people around the moon, there will be a mission that, like Apollo 8, goes around the moon. I mean, Apollo 8 was the first time a Saturn V took people into space. And on that trip, they went around the moon because they needed to demonstrate that it was something that they could do. They needed to show some progress. They needed a spectacular publicity win. And NASA needs that again. So missions that take humans out as far as the moon, again, still probably not 2024, I don't think, but certainly a long time before we actually put boots on the ground again. 
we might have humans on the moon again by 2030. I'll be surprised if it's much before then. Now, I know that some of you have spent the last 10 minutes or so muttering at your devices about why we shouldn't be going to the moon at all. We've got so many problems to solve on Earth as it is. What is the point of spending all of that money taking people to the moon, a place we've been, a place where humans literally can't survive unaided? Why are we going there anyway? What is the point? Well, first of all, if you've heard this show before, you know what my attitude to space exploration is. We should do it because it's there. Space exists and we should be exploring. Yes, we should also be fixing the problems on Earth, uh, but the two things are not mutually exclusive. Indeed, developments made for space exploration have often proved useful for improving the quality of life on Earth and occasionally helping us fix some of the issues that we caused on Earth. So, you know, there's that. But more than that, the moon is an incredibly useful place to test stuff out. If we are going to send people to Mars, which again, we're not going to do anytime soon. We don't have the technology to get people there yet. But if we are intending to do that at any point, any equipment you need to rely on on, the, on Mars, you'd better make sure you've tested it on the moon first. The moon's not a perfect stand-in for Mars, but it's a much better test of the equipment than anything we can do on Earth. And if there's a problem on the moon, help needn't be far away. Indeed, if there's a problem on the moon, help from Earth can be with you in a few days. Help from orbiting space stations around the moon could be with you in hours. For the first people to go to Mars, help is going to be literally months away. You need to be using tried and tested kit. And then, of course, there's all the stuff that you could do on the moon. Power generation, for instance. It is possible, it's expensive at the moment, but it's possible to transmit energy using lasers. You can shoot Earth with a laser from the moon. We know that because we are currently shooting the moon with lasers from Earth. It would work both ways. That means there is, at least in theory, a way of getting energy from the moon to the Earth. And there's a lot of solar energy available on the moon. You could put up massive solar farms on the moon. You could even put them on the side of the moon that we can't see so they wouldn't spoil the view. You could generate vast quantities of electricity, turn into laser light and shoot down to Earth as needed. So, you know, you would be creating the ultimate zero carbon, zero pollution on Earth solution to our energy needs. A little far-fetched, I agree, but it's theoretically possible it could be done. And of course, the opportunities that the moon could give us for astronomy are just astounding. We've got a side of the moon that always points away from Earth. That means any radio telescope that you put on that side of the moon has the whole of the moon shielding it from the Earth's electromagnetic radiation. And the Earth kicks out a lot of electromagnetic radiation. Radio signals, microwaves, TV signals, all of this stuff that we generate plays havoc with radio telescopes. There's a story from uh, an American university radio telescope in the 19, I think it was the 1970s, where they were picking up regular bursts of microwave radiation. They couldn't work out where it's coming from, but they thought they might be on the verge of a major discovery. The, the, the regular nature of the signal seemed to hint at intelligent life. And, you know, they were thinking, you know, there might be Nobel Prizes in the offing and stuff. Turned out what they were actually picking up was the microwave in a nearby canteen 
and the signals were regular because they appeared at breakfast, lunch, and tea time. So, of course, they were regular. That's not a problem if you put your radio telescope on the other side of the moon. The amount we could learn is just staggering. It's worth going to the moon just for that, in my view. So, you know, there are lots of reasons to go to the moon. There are other less savoury reasons. Uh, there are thoughts that we might be able to do some mining there. Well, yes. OK, might be good to not be depleting the Earth's natural resources anymore. But come on, we've wrecked one planet already. Let's try not to do it to the moon, too. Same goes for Mars in that regard. So, yeah, essentially, Project Artemis, which is NASA's project to take people back to the moon, has been delayed because the astronauts will have nothing to wear. But it is still ploughing on and we will see people around the moon soon and on the moon soon enough. And in next week's space segment, I might actually do a little bit of a deeper dive into Project Artemis because... Some of the engineering developments surrounding that project are just beyond cool. So that may be for next week or maybe in a couple of weeks if the research takes me longer than I think it will. Anyway, for now, that's it for space. And because I do love a good jingle, we are going to go straight into... And I regret that this week the science news is not good. It's not good for me, it's not good for you, it's not good for anybody, and it's very, very bad indeed for humanity as a whole. Because the International Planet on Climate Change, the IPCC, has released its latest report. And its latest report is the most depressing thing I've read in my life. Now, just to establish some credentials, the IPCC knows what it's talking about. It's made up of scientists from about 160 countries. They are the top people in the field of planetary and climate science. They have access to absolutely everything they could possibly need to speak about climate change with authority. And what they're saying basically is we've gone and broken the planet. The last big intergovernmental climate summit that we had in the world in Paris a few years ago said that our target was to keep global temperature to within 1.5 degrees of where it was in pre-industrial times. This report out at uh, the end of last week states very, very clearly and completely unambiguously that 1.5 degrees of warming is the best case scenario we can possibly expect now. 1.5 degrees of warming across the globe is inevitable. We can't stop it. If we didn't release any more greenhouse gases starting immediately this very second, that rise is still going to happen. And that is much, much more alarming than it sounds. I don't like to be alarmist here, and there may be some good news stuff at the end of this segment, but trust me, this is very bad. One and a half degrees may not seem like a lot of heating to you, and in the context of your house, it isn't. I turn my thermostat up by one and a half degrees quite a lot in the winter, and so far there have been no natural disasters in my living room. But I have the privilege of living in Harrogate, which has a temperate climate. The average temperature in Yorkshire in August, which is the hottest month of the year in Yorkshire, is 21 degrees. One and a half degrees of warming on top of that would make that average 22 and a half degrees. That's actually to me probably too hot, but it's perfectly livable with. Personally would be uncomfortable, but I can always buy a fan. But 
The average temperature in somewhere like Tunisia in the hottest month of the year is somewhere around 34 degrees. Now, 1.5 degrees of warming on top of that takes you to 35.5 degrees, and that is unbearably hot. There's research to show that in parts of uh, America, parts of Arizona in particular, if the temperature continues to rise the way it is, parts of Arizona will be uninhabitable by humans in a few decades. The same is true of parts of the Middle East. The same is true of parts of Africa. The same is true of many equatorial regions. So that's a problem. We are literally making it not possible for humans to live unaided on parts of the planet we evolved on that have always been inhabited before. Okay, We are creating extreme environments where they did not used to be extreme. Now, the consequences of that are fairly easy to think about. People are going to have to move away from those areas. We're actually going to have climate refugees. And judging by the way refugees are generally regarded now, that's not going to be positive. So there's that. But actually, 1.5 degrees of warming across the globe is bad for many other reasons too. 1.5 degrees doesn't, as previously discussed, sound like a lot. But imagine the amount of extra energy that is going to be in the atmosphere if we're going to heat the whole of the atmosphere of the planet up by one and a half degrees. That's a lot of energy. And that's a problem because energy in the atmosphere generates storms. That's one of the reasons why hurricanes happen in warm areas. More heat means more powerful winds. More powerful winds mean property damage. And at the extreme end of that, deaths. I'm sure everybody can remember seeing footage of the aftermath of hurricanes. So you'll know that bad hurricanes are costly, not just in lives, but in property damage, which costs a fortune to put right. A clear consequence of the climate change we're experiencing is going to be not just more violent storms, but violent storms and hurricanes of increased ferocity. The kind of thing that we would have called a once in a century event. It's going to become just the normal, the regular. And it's not just wind. Warm air carries more moisture than cold air. So if the atmosphere heats up and continues to heat up as it is doing, there will be more water held in the atmosphere, which means more rain. We had the catastrophic floods in Germany and Belgium just a few weeks ago. Those kind of events are going to become more common. Again, massive cost in terms of damage to property, having to rebuild things, but also cost in human lives. And the science is settled. We did this. That's not a controversial statement anymore. It's not a theory anymore. It's an established fact which can be demonstrated by evidence. So we've done it. Of course, and as of right now, we are still doing it. But that is enough of the boring and preachy part. It's a problem. It's a big, big problem. And I, do you know what? It's going to be a problem for a long time. We are still at a point when we can fix this, but we can't fix it quickly. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. And there's nothing we can do about that. But we are not going to finish the science section on a downer because science is about hope. So something that did come out of the IPCC report and give us hope is this. All of the things that we need to do to fix the problem we've created are cost effective. Indeed, investing in the things we need to do to fix the problem we've created will actually produce 
return on that investment. Over time for sure, but you will make money by doing the things that you need to do to stop climate change getting worse. Now, the left-leaning bit of me is kind of sad that it takes that to be a fact for people to actually be prepared to do anything. But the pragmatic bit of me says, I don't care why people do the right thing as long as they do the right thing. I'm very keen to save the world. I'm one of the people who has to live on it. And just one other thing. If we don't fix this and we do make it impossible for humans to live on the planet, we won't have killed the planet. We'll only have killed ourselves. The planet will be fine. Species will evolve to cope. Just not us. Some people might think that that's poetic justice. But I think that if more people thought of it that way, doing the things we need to do to fix the problem we've caused would be a much easier sell. We're not trying to save the world. We're actually trying to save ourselves. No, sounds like the boring preachy part got a little bit longer. Let's just end it there. Next week, we'll talk about something to do with science that's a little bit more fun than the potential extinction of humanity. Okay, onwards and onwards. Links in the show notes again to all of the climate science that I was talking about there. Although, to be honest, I am going to recommend that you just don't, because seriously, it's the most depressing thing I've ever, ever read. Oh, so let's move on to something that is perhaps just a little bit more fun and optimistic. We're going to go take a look at some comics of the week. And just because I'd like to be contrary, we're going to start with a comic that I haven't read yet and. I can't sell you a copy of, because I'm already sold out. And that is Nightwing 83. Now, why am I telling you about a comic that I haven't read and that I can't sell you anyway? Well, first of all, picking comics of the week is not about generating sales for Destination Venus. Uh, I mean, if I do that, I ain't going to complain. But this is not an advertising feature. This is a review feature of stuff that I like. And I really like Nightwing 83, and I know that even though I haven't read it. And the reason I know that is because, A, I am a massive fan of the current run of Nightwing, and B, it's the cover. It's the best comics cover I have seen in an absolute age, because it does something interesting. Right, if you are not familiar with Nightwing, Nightwing is the superhero identity of Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson was the original Robin. See our feature on one of the Robins coming out as bisexual last week for more information on Robin and what's been going on with that and where Dick Grayson comes from and all that kind of stuff. Grayson, of course, he's not technically speaking a superhero because he doesn't have superpowers. He doesn't even have the superpower that Bruce Wayne has, which is money. He is still, nevertheless, one of the best heroes in the DC universe, and you really should read his books because they're great. Now, what's so special about Nightwing 83? Well, all of the covers of this particular run of Nightwing have been great. Some really, really vibrant design going on. This cover in particular, though, is particularly impressive because it is extraordinarily innovative. It's not the first time this has been done exactly, but it's not done very often and it's rarely done this well. What you've got is the cover and the basic background of the cover is a sort of series of platforms and gantries such as you might get backstage in a theatre. At the bottom of the cover, you can see that there's a lectern set up on a stage and we're looking out towards the audience. Okay. Now, in the foreground, at the top left-hand corner of the cover, we've got Nightwing swinging into land on the top gantry. And then, moving left to right and down, and then right to left and down, and then left to right and down, and we see Nightwing 
running along the gantries and down the stairs. And as he does so, he's stripping off his Nightwing costume and pulling on regular street clothes until at the very bottom, standing at the lectern, we have Dick Grayson addressing the crowd and saying, Hi, my name's Dick Grayson and I've got an idea. And it's basically a comics page in one panel with all the action taking place as though we could see lots of bits of time at once. I'm not explaining that well. There is a picture of this cover in the show notes. Just go and have a look at it. It is a thing of absolute beauty and it shows really clearly one of the things that comics can do that no other medium can, which is to show you several moments of time at once. As I said, this isn't the first time it's been done, but it is one of the best instances of this that I have seen in 30 odd years of reading comics. So that's the first thing. But what about comics I've actually read? Well, we're going to start with a comic uh, issue one out this week from Boom Studios, a company you're going to hear a lot of. I'm sure, in fact, you have heard a lot of on this show already. Boom are one of the best, most innovative, smaller publishers out there in Anglophone comics right now. This particular comic is called Eat the Rich. It is by uh, Sarah Gailey, who does the writing uh, with art by Pius Back, uh, Roman Titov, and letters by Cardinal Ray. Oh, where do I start? You've got a, a young couple, Joey and Aster. Joey is studying law uh, with her boyfriend, Aster. Aster is from money. Serious, big money. His family have got wadges of cash. Aster is kind of set aside from that a little bit. You know, he's gone out, he's studying law. But every summer he goes home and joins his family at what he refers to as their beach house. Joey goes with him and she's nervous about meeting her boyfriend's family. She's not sure she can fit in. She's not from that kind of moneyed background. These people are the super rich. As she realises when they get to the heavy air quotes, beach house, and it's bigger than most hotels. Right away, she feels weird. Something feels off about this place, and she can't quite put a finger on it. She assumes it's because she's just not used to this kind of lavish lifestyle, the kind of world where you don't ever carry your own bag, the kind of world where you don't talk to the servants, the kind of world where there are servants, for goodness sake. And she she's a little bit squeed by it. It's a little bit skeezed out. And on the first night there, there is a massive party, a retirement party for one of the staff. And that feels wrong too. She just doesn't feel like she can fit in. And then she sees something that makes her realise that there is something very sinister and very wrong going on here. This is not about her lack of comfort with the lifestyle of the 1%. This is something far far worse. And it's just a brilliant read. If anything, it, it puts me a little bit in mind of the vibe of movies like Get Out or um, perhaps going further back. There's a film I dimly remember from the mid to late 80s called Society, uh, which also has a similar vibe to this. That's not giving you any spoilers about the story itself. That's just the, the atmosphere, the attitude, if you like of the narrative. Uh, the script is beautifully put together. We, we see everything through Joey's eyes. There is no explanation as to why she's called Joey. I presume her actual name is Josephine, although we're not told that. 
possibly Joanne, I suppose. Um, but whatever. We get to see, again, through her eyes, some of her boyfriend Aster's insecurities and demons, because he's got a few. And uh, again, just reading between the lines with the, the, the small amount of information we're given about Aster's childhood in issue one, that I can see some reasons why he'd have those de demons. There are also, in the artwork, some beautiful little touches that foreshadow what is to come. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what they are because I want you to see them as you read the book. But there's a, a point where Joey goes down to the beach just to get a bit of air. And she runs into the nanny of the, for the family and the small child that the nanny looks after. And as Joey is talking to the nanny, the small child is playing in the sand. And you can see what he's doing. Neither adult is paying any attention to him. And you can see what he's doing. And he picks something up. And the fact that he picks that up and you see what it is, is an immediate, oh, this ain't right moment. And it's very cinematic in that way. There's also a, a, a panel where we see the, the chefs in the kitchen and what they're butchering is shown in such a way as to be deliciously ambiguous. We can't quite see what kind of animal it is. And again, it just adds a layer of, oh, this doesn't feel right, energy to the whole thing. It's absolutely brilliantly, brilliantly done. As is the next comic I want to talk to you about, this time from Image, but also out this week with issue one. Um, it's called Second Chances, and it is an astonishing piece of work. I'm almost tempted to tell you nothing about the story content because there's no way that my explanation of what this book is about will prepare you for the brilliance of this book. It's it's that good and that different because it's not at all what I was expecting. I'll give you, actually, the official blurb that the publisher Image put out to promote this book. They said, and I quote, Second Chances Hotline, call now and get a new identity. All you need is some cash, a proper referral, and a very good reason to start over. When a black, the man behind the hotline is approached by a shady figure from his past. He's forced to accept a new client who doesn't meet any of the requirements. A client with chemically induced amnesia in desperate need of protection. Up-and-coming writer Ricky Mamone and artist Max Bertolini explode onto the scene with this psychedelic, action-packed, bizarre noir that feels like John Wick punching through an existential French New Way fever dream. And do you know what? That doesn't even begin to do this book justice. For a start, it is that rarest of things these days, black and white. Just like a French New Way film or a proper film noir. Well, I say black and white. It's monochrome. It's grayscale. Something that they've committed to so fully that it's not just the story pages in the comic that are black and white or grayscale. It's the adverts. Every single page. There is no colour in this book at all. Now, that is commercially a very brave decision and it illustrates the level of commitment the creators have to the vision they're putting forward. And it really is a complex vision because that story descriptor, that's not even a tenth of what is going on here. 
the 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 story itself is told to us through the eyes of LeBlanc, the the guy who gives people the second chances. And although there's very little real exposition in the the narrative that we get, we're told an awful lot through very subtle means. Um, things in the background artwork again, uh, but also the way the character speaks to the audience suggests various things. Things are implied. And so you end the comic knowing an awful lot more than you've actually been told. And I love stuff like that. This is, again, a remarkable, remarkable piece of work. I am already looking forward to issue two. The the the, the page design, the layout, the quality of the artwork, the quality of the writing, it's just sublime. And I know I keep saying that about things, but it really is true. So often these days, I think we've reached a point where the comics market has contracted to the point that only people who are really, really keen are picking up comics. And we, my friends, are a very discerning audience. We just won't buy rubbish. And the competition for the market share has now got so fierce that publishers really won't put out dross. They really won't. If you want to work professionally in comics these days, you've got to be exceptional because anything less than that simply won't be hired. It really is as simple as that. Although you will see chatter on the internet from people who say, you know, comics these days are terrible. They were so much better in the 80s. There's too much politics in it now. They're too woke. Uh, the quality of the storytelling isn't there. They hire, they're hiring bad writers and bad artists for diversity's sake. You'll hear that on the internet. I'm here to tell you that such nonsense is observably and demonstrably nonsense. There is stuff that you, that people will find not to their taste. That's not the same as it being bad. There are comics that I do not enjoy. I would never say any of them were bad. At least none of the things that are being put out professionally. Because they're not. They're not. It's, it's like saying that somebody like uh, Hugh Grant isn't really a good actor because he only ever plays himself. Well, yeah, but he does it really well. He's very good at what he does. Uh, you could say the same thing about Keanu Reeves. Um, whether what they do is to your taste or not will determine whether you like them as an actor. But there's no argument really to say they're not good at it. They're very good at what they do. As are the people behind my final selection for this week. Oh, these segues. I'm getting good at this. Um, this is a very different tone and a very different kind of comic to the two I've previously reviewed. This is Killer Queens. It's from Dark Horse. Words by um, David M. Boer, uh, with art by Claudia Balboni and Harry Saxton, and letters by Lucas Gattoni. It's a it's a huge change of pace. This is the story of Max and Alex. They are best friends. They are business partners, and they're on the run. They're both. Also, according to the blurb, and I'm going to use heavy air quotes with just a slight eye roll here, super gay. Um, and I'll come back to why that's in air quotes and I'm rolling my eyes in a minute. They're on the run because their former boss, who is a 
talking fluffy monkey with a jetpack is after them because they stole his spaceship. And rule number one in action comedies and sci-fi action comedies is don't make an enemy of a gangster, which they've done. So they need to get some money. They take a job. They're reformed Galactic Assassins, so it's a no-kill job. Um, all they've got to do is recover something from a nearby moon. The problem? Half of the moon is ruled by a fascist dictator who is completely hostile to outsiders. But they are the killer queen, so what could possibly go wrong? Um, quite a lot. And there's your story. This is a tale of love, xenophobia and the terror of fascism. Now, you might be wondering why I was rolling my eyes and putting super gay in heavy air quotes. Because I've not known for my objections to that kind of thing, and I don't have any here either, really. It's just, I get it, I do get it. This is a book that is setting out its stall really, really early. We, we, we first meet Max and Alex as they're on dates. Um, one of them is having their date go really well, the other is not so good. And so, you know, the sexuality of the two characters, uh, one's a lesbian, one's a gay man, uh, is on page one. The, this comic sets its stall out really, really early. It's LGBTQIA plus friendly. Uh, and it is, in fact, uh, an entirely LGBTQIA plus creative team. Brilliant. Fantastic. Love that. Uh, we see more of representation of diverse sexualities in comics now than we used to. But there's always room for more. Comics has historically been a very cisgender, heterosexual place. And so, yeah, that that representation and that focus and that willingness to just treat it as normal, because it is, that I'm all on board with. Absolutely great. My air quotes and my eye rolling come from wondering who wrote that blurb. Because I have a feeling it wasn't the creators. I, I, if I'm wrong, I'm happy to be standing corrected. And if that's the terminology that the creators prefer, then fine. Again, cool. It's just that the sexuality of Max and Alex is irrelevant to the story. This is not a story about people being gay. It's a story about people who are gay doing stuff, which, again, to my mind, is, is how things should be. Uh, generally speaking, the least interesting thing about any fictional character is their sexuality. And indeed, the least interesting thing about most people is their sexuality. The only time somebody's sexuality becomes of interest, generally speaking, is when you are interested in that individual person. Beyond that, does it matter? You know, really doesn't. To my way of thinking, the super gay comment in the blurb is misleading in a way that's actually unhelpful to the story and the comic, because it gives the impression that this is going to be a story in high camp and, you know, maybe pushing the sexuality thing down your throat a little bit. And it isn't that at all. What we've got is a fast, fun, frantic sci-fi comedy, uh, potentially an epic sweep here. Describing Max and Alex as gay in the blurb, fine. It's just super gay. Somehow that just doesn't it just doesn't seem to fit quite to me with the tone of the comic. That said, if the book is so good that that's the only criticism I've got of it, a throwaway comment 
not even in the book itself, but in the blurb for the book, that gives you some indication of how much I enjoyed it, which was hugely fantastic, fantastic writing. The dialogue in this is just on point. You can really believe that Max and Alex are very, very old friends, very, very good friends. They've, the banter between them is great. Um, the supporting characters also, there's, there's a sense of humour in the dialogue that I really like. Uh, and the artwork, again, fits the tone of the story. It's quite vibrant. It's quite bright. The lines, though, are quite clean. And it just looks the business. So there you go. That's three comics all out this week, all issue ones, all very highly recommended. And a fourth one where I really like the cover and I just want you to look at a picture of it, sold out of the actual book uh, on pre-orders. Largely, I think, because people saw the cover and just wanted it on their wall. Uh, that's certainly where I'm going to put a copy. Uh, so check out your local comic store and uh, have a look at them. OK, moving on, moving on. Um, don't have a jingle for this next bit, but it strikes me that you're listening to this show, which means you must quite like audio. There are no pictures here, which means you're probably going to quite like podcasts too. There is, as I mentioned pretty much every week, a podcast version of this very show. Although at the moment, the podcast version and the broadcast version are effectively identical. That hasn't always been the case and hopefully will not be the case in the future. It, because obviously we're broadcasting on a network here, the, uh, the radio version of the show has to be exactly 60 minutes long. The podcast version can be longer because I'm in control of the podcast. Uh, I, you know, I don't have to be off the air in order for the next show to come on. So sometimes there is bonus material in the podcast version. Not had time to do any of that for a while, but hopefully it's coming back. So that's one podcast you could sign up for. But there are so many others and a few that I'd really like to recommend. The first is a narrative podcast called After the Revolution by a writer and journalist called Robert Evans, who I have mentioned here before. He also hosts a show called Behind the Bastards, in which he explains the worst people in the world to a guest on the show. And a show called Worst Year Ever, which started in 2020 uh, when they were expecting 2020 to be the worst year ever because of the US presidential election. And then 2020 actually happened and proved to be the worst year ever. They've kept it going into 2021 because, as they noted, this is worse. I'm fans of both of those shows. That's not the podcast I'm recommending. One of the preoccupations of Robert Evans' journalistic career is war zones. He's reported from war zones in Syria and in Iraq. And as a relatively left wing, insofar as those terms mean anything anymore, journalist from a fairly right wing part of America, uh, he grew up in Texas. Evans has also been fascinated throughout his career by the divisions in American society. And his novel, After the Revolution, which is also available in podcast form, projects a possible future where the United States is, in fact, fragmented and broken up. And there are various states now, the American Federation, uh, the Free State of Texas. Some states are theocracies, some are aggressively secular. And 
in all of them, there are various groups and militias who are trying to change society to be the one that they think is ideal. It's genuinely alarming that this doesn't sound quite as far out and fantastic as it might have done a decade ago. But it's brilliantly written and performed read by Evans himself. Uh, the story follows three main protagonists. You've got Manny, who is a young guy in Texas, a fixer, who will take journalists around war zone, the, the war zone that is Texas, uh, in the way that when he himself was a war reporter, he had local people who set things up for him and, and you know eased his path through the places he was visiting. Then there's Sasha. She is a young, idealistic high school senior in the American Federation, but one who has been radicalised by the radio broadcast of a guy called Pastor Mike. And she wants to go and join God's Kingdom, a militia, and she's determined to do so. And then there's Roland. Roland is ex-military. He's full of government-developed cybernetic implants and various other modifications that make him very fast, very strong, very hard to hurt. Uh, and also, his head is completely empty of memories. He can remember nothing. The story puts these three characters, who are coming from very different places, on a collision course with each other. What happens when they meet? Well, that's the story. Uh, it's available to podcasts. It's also available as uh, an EPUB. Uh, which you can read on the e-reader of your choice. Links to both versions in the show notes. Just go to www.destinationvenus.co.uk and search for this episode of Geeking with Destination Venus in the blog section of that website. Before we move on, one more podcast to recommend. Particularly if you've been interested in the space section of the last couple of podcasts about going back to the moon and the space suits and the Artemis project and all of that. Um, there is a podcast called Tech Stuff, which has done episodes recently about all of these things and spent a lot more time going into it than I did. So there's a lot more detail available there. It's pretty accessible too. Uh, the host really explains things very well. Uh, it links again to that in the show notes. And on we march to the information centre that is the Geeking Community Corkboard. First of all, you might want to follow the Harrogate Lego Trail. It's running until next weekend, and there are various Lego models displayed in various places around Harrogate. And it's just a bit of fun, really. And who doesn't need a little bit of extra fun? So if you're out and about around Harrogate, keep your eyes open, or go to the appropriate webpage and take a look at the route of the trail and make a deliberate effort to follow it. Links to all of that are in the show notes. And just one other note on the corkboard this week. Uh, our good friends over at the Geek Bar have two things they want to let you know. First of all, they are still running introduction sections for Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, if you listened to the D&D &D game that I played alongside Hat and Alice and Liz in our Geeks at the Gates days, and you thought, that sounds like fun. I'd like to have a go at that. Uh, the Geek Bar is the place to head. 
They did want me to let you know, though, that their sessions are almost full. So get in touch before you go down. Uh, they're easy to get hold of. Just go to their Facebook page. Um, just look for the Geek Bar Harrogate uh, on Facebook and you'll find them. Shoot them a message. All sorted. Um, the other thing that they just wanted me to let you know was uh, about Magic the Gathering. Now, I, I'm just going to read out what they said. I don't play Magic. I've played precisely one game of Magic. It was huge fun. Really enjoyed it. Just not had time to play it anymore. And I don't, therefore, know the ins and outs of everything. So there is a thing called Friday Night Magic. That's a thing. It's a worldwide thing. Uh, people get together on a Friday night to play Magic the Gathering. It's been going on for years. Uh, there's a Friday Night Magic at the Geek Bar every Friday. This week, it will be Commander. If you haven't played before, they've got several decks to choose from, so come on down. Uh, I think there's a, like a 250 charge to join the game, I, and, that, and that's the lot. Uh, so if you are into magic, I'm assuming you know what playing Commander means. I actually don't. Um, if you don't either, but you'd like to know, go down to the Geek Bar on Friday night. How about that? I mean, go down to the Geek Bar on Friday night anyway. It's a great place. Please drink responsibly. Now, if you have any geeky event that you would like to get the word out about, just let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Please remember, the Geek Community Call Board is available not for advertising, but for announcements. If you want to advertise your business, there are ways to do that. Not through me. We do not accept paid advertising here. But um, if you just want to tell people about a thing that is happening at your business, that's fine. I'm happy to do that. And I want to be very clear to everybody, I make no endorsements, I make no claims for anything, and I take no money from anyone. I am simply here to tell you what's happening. Again, if you want to tell me what's happening, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. And that is the email address to get in touch about anything, really. If you've got some comments about things that I've talked about in this show or any other, if you want to give me more information about something that I might have got wrong, if you want to complain about something that I've said, if you want to tell me that I'm absolutely right and you totally support every word that comes out of my mouth, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to go. Oh, actually, before I move on, do you know, this was in the script again. This is the second time I've done this in two weeks. This was in the script and my eyes just went straight over the paragraph. I don't know why I bother writing this show. I really don't. I might as well just wing it. Anyway. Something that I should have mentioned during the court board was Free Comic Book Day. You may recall that Free Comic Book Day was supposed to take place uh, last weekend on the 14th of August. Uh, and in many places it did. If you managed to get to a Free Comic Book Day event last weekend, I hope you enjoyed it. I had a good time. Uh, I'm sure that whichever local comic shop you went to was happy to see you. We didn't do it on the 14th because, as I mentioned in last week's show, we hadn't received all of the free comics that we were supposed to be giving away. And I didn't see the point in doing the event if I didn't have all the stuff. We've got most of it now. Certainly, we've got enough to make the event worth doing now. And I'm 90% confident that the missing bits will arrive next week. So we are on, ladies and gentlemen. Free comic book day at Destination Venus in Harrogate will be Saturday, the 28th of August. On that day... From 10.30, we open at 10. Free Comic Book Day won't start until 10.30 because I want to make sure that unlike the last time we did it, there isn't chaos at the start because I was not ready when the crowds arrived. So from 10.30, under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema Harrogate, 
we will have a selection of specially produced comics which you can take away for free. No purchase necessary, no catch at all, just the chance to check some stuff out at no financial risk to yourself. Maybe you'll find something new that you really, really like. The only caveats we put on it really are please don't take anything that you don't think you will enjoy. Leave that for somebody who might. And please don't take more than one of anything. If you're picking one up for your mate as well, I guess that's okay. But, you know, stocks are limited. So please try and play as nicely and as fairly as you can. And of course, I should say that it is only the specially produced free comic book day comics that are free on Saturday the 28th. Everything else is at its normal price. Unless I might actually do a deal on back issues on the day as well, because, you know, I might be feeling generous. But come on down, come one, come all. It'd be nice to see you. And, you know, if you've never really looked at comics or you haven't read a comic since that issue of the Beano when you were 10, maybe do come down and just see what modern comics are like. Offer available only while stocks last. For full details, please see the website. Uh, links in the show notes. Or go to www.destinationvenus.co.uk for more. And that, my friends, is very nearly that. We will be back next week with hopefully more fun science news, by which I mean science news that is actually fun. More stuff on space, more stuff on comics, more stuff on podcasts, maybe some stuff on film or TV. Joe, you know, we haven't actually done a review of Loki or Falcon and the Winter Soldier or WandaVision on here yet. That's sadly remiss of us. It's just getting people together to actually talk about it. And I, that's the kind of thing I don't want to just ramble on about to myself. And the sad fact is that um, all of my assembled coterie of geeks is busy, which is one of the reasons why we sort of put geeks at the gates on hiatus. We just can't get the geeks together. They're busy at work. They're moving house. They've got small children. All kinds of reasons why it's just difficult to do that these days. But never fear, we'll get there. We will. And I hope to bring you reviews of many, many things off of the telly very soon. And we've got some sort of special feature items in the works. Um, I don't want to say too much about it yet because everything's still a little bit in the planning phases. But we're hoping to have some very special stuff for you fairly soon, including, if I can pull this off, some actual outside broadcast stuff. Oh yeah, we've got the ambitions. So that's all for the future for now. All that is left to say is that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature produced in Yorkshire by Venus Rising Media and it is engineered, so far as that goes, by me, Reggie Rigby, head audio producer at the aforementioned Venus Rising Media. We will leave you with our geeky quote of the week. Which is, in Europe, they call geeks smart people. And frankly, I think we live in a culture that doesn't value intelligence enough. So I am very proud in saying that I am a geek. That was James Masters, who played Spike in Buffy, amongst many other great geeky roles that he's played. And just remember that. We're not just geeks. We're the clever kids in the room. Oh, yeah. So bear that in mind as you go forward into the rest of your week. Have yourselves a fantastic week. We will see you here. Same time, same device, probably, unless you choose to use a different one. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else, and take care. Until the next time, we go geeking! (laughs) 